are listening to Historically, a show where we decolonize history and debunk myths and misinformation taught to you in school and on corporate media. Today, we have Aiden Jonah from the Canada Files. Can you tell us a little bit more about the Canada Files and what made you start it? For me, it was really just this feeling that foreign policy uh, wasn't taken seriously enough among the left I in Canada. I felt like there was obviously there's some nascent efforts and there's been efforts for a while, but on an institutional media level, there had never been a serious effort. Uh, okay, Aiden, can I yep. have a quick question? Yep. A lot of people in America seem to believe that throughout history, Canada's like a much more to the left than U.S. So has Canada actually gone against the U.S. on any foreign policy in history? Uh, it's pretty as far much as you that. know. Uh, from from my perspective, it's it's not. It's almost something that's if it happens, it's maybe once or twice a century. I mean, even in classic examples with uh, the invasion of Iraq, where everyone thought Canada stayed out of the war, we just we literally just brought some of the special like certain uh, people in the military. We just quietly brought them in to support the war, and we also just sold a ton of weapons and military arms to the countries that were fighting in that war. Uh, we we actually used aid projects uh, in Vietnam to actually help spy for the Americans. So I mean, like we've been supportive of imperialism for our entire uh, our entire history. Obviously, Canada was built on genocidal colonialism that lasts to this day, and it's been supportive of imperialism since the since the very start of its history. So I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to like ask you questions about all the myths about Canada that Americans think. And you're going to tell me why it's historically wrong. Does, does that sound like a good format? Uh, yeah, sure. We could certainly start off with that. Yeah. OK, it's going to be based on our, your articles, of course. <laughs> OK, so the first thing is that people think that Canada is a much more progressive place than America. Do you believe this? I, I would say that really smacks me of, uh, of Canadian uh, exceptionalism. I, I kind of just feel like Canadian elites and uh, social imperialists or social democrats, as many like to call themselves, have just been better at laundering the myths of Canadian uh, history and Canadian exceptionalism uh, than, uh, they, than American elites uh, have really been. Um, I mean, certainly there's certain minor elements that are slightly better, but it's not some sort of majorly better. It's not some sort of thank goodness we're in Canada or whatever. No, no, that, that couldn't be more false. So. so with regards to foreign policy, does Canada sanction Cuba? Uh, no, no, Canada doesn't sanction Cuba, but there's a whole interesting thing um, where Canada did actually do spying on behalf of the Americans, especially like in the 60s, 70s. So we, we didn't, we haven't directly sanctioned them, but like I said, we've spied on them and in a lot of our rhetoric and towards Cuba, I mean, especially in the past few years, as Trump's come along, our rhetoric has very much been a justification uh, inherently of the blockade. And there's been no effort to really resist it, which obviously I think, as you'd know, the playing, uh, playing and sort of trying to play a middle ground neutral kind of position of America just means you're inherently supporting America's uh, imperialist foreign policy. Okay. so. What about with regards 
to the pink tide that happened in 2000 to 2010. There was Venezuela, which had a major change in government. How did Canada behave towards the Bolivarian Revolution? Uh, I mean, Canada has really been hostile to uh, to it from the from the very beginning. In fact, especially when you had uh, the, the, the the attempted two thousand and two coup, Canada was very much on board with that, and of course, it, it ended up failing, luckily. And then, I mean, when you had the the oil strikes, oh, basically, the- so it seems like what happened is that Hugo Chavez nationalized a lot of the. Venezuelan oil company. And in response, some management decided to stop production on oil. And so Canada, how did Canada support that strike? So it was, uh, it was mostly uh, in the sense of moral uh, and diplomatic uh, support, which is obviously very crucial uh, in terms of uh, corporations connected to uh, the imperial core. That diplomatic support really gives it the legitimacy and allows um, basically mainstream media to kind of launder the narratives of the company, quite frankly. So that's, that's the one of the more the, key points. What was the narrative that they laundered, I guess? <laughs> I, just, I, I mean, know. really with, uh, with the 2002 coup, uh, it was quite frankly that it was a return to democracy. Because, ah. uh, I mean, that's, that's, that's always the push. I mean, I'll tell you something about is that Canada used to have this Democracy Promotion Institute uh, oh my called, god! Actually, this is great. Um, it, it was it like NED? Uh, it was called Rights and Democracy. Okay, and how was it different from the NED? Right. So in this case, it it didn't so much disperse funds. Uh, and the most fascinating part is it, this: this came, this kind of started to go into motion in 1990, and then it was the mid to late 1990s that this really fully launched. Uh, and it was actually NDP, Social Democrat, former Social Democrat leader like, like uh, Ed Broadbent. Georgie- like Jagjit um, Singh's party, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, basically, he actually was the first one to head up that Rights and Democracy Institute. And so Canada has been actually quite big on this democracy promotion uh, BS for a long time. And it was kind of weird for me, like researching into that, that, uh, I mean, it's been a constant pattern for me when I research into these things. It's, it's stunning to me that nobody has looked into these things before, because I mean, Canada has quite the scandalous history of that. And like bringing it to like more to the modern day. I mean, Canada is, there was a report like only about a year and a bit ago, uh, very much openly calling for Canada to actually create a new democracy promotion, uh, democracy promotion institutes. That's because eventually it failed when Harper, Stephen Harper, this was a progressive uh, conservative government uh, around that 2012 to 2014 period when they were cracking, cutting down on NGOs and, and uh, financial support to these kind of uh, civil society organizations. Uh, that was one of the organizations that got on the chopping block, but now they're looking to pull one of those back up into the into the modern day. So, okay. so this probably goes against a lot of people's beliefs about Trudeau and Harper. So you're saying that Harper, the more conservative candidate, chopped that organization, and the more slightly leftist candidate, Trudeau, is trying to resurrect it. Right. So it's uh, it was it was a parliamentary uh, committee. Uh, it was a parliamentary committee report that is a uh, calling for. But Harper didn't call it because didn't cut it because he was some sort of anti-imperialist. It was just more of an austerity agenda. 
after uh, after basically he won a majority back in 2011. So was there like some other institute that took over the role of this quote unquote democracy promotion? Well, a lot of it uh, has been done through uh, through the Canadian International Development Agency for many decades. Uh, it's I mean, Canada's always into this international aid. It's even from the start, it was always with a mind of pushing uh, nations away from communism and from social from communism. So from the very start, it was explicitly made clear by the highest levels of Canadian government, even in like the 50s, that the aid projects that Canada was doing, that was very much their purpose. And that's never uh, really changed. So like CETA is now uh, part CETA of global, again? I'm sorry. What's CETA again? Canadian International Development Agency. The, what do they do? Think of it like Canada's USAID. Okay. Uh, that's that's one of the, the one of the key things. Um, uh, getting uh, back to like Venezuela, I mean, CETA has been one of the uh, it's, it's it's been very open. It along with uh, Foreign Affairs, which is now called Global Affairs Canada, was very much open in supporting uh, the the Venezuelan opposition, giving it grants whenever it could. Uh, and I mean, especially through there's this thing called Canadian. The Canada Fund for Local Initiatives. So, so this is another governmental organization or an NGO? No, no, no. This is done through uh, Global Affairs Canada. What is, so, I'm sorry, hold on. What is Global Affairs Canada again? I'm sorry if I ask this, I'm getting a little confused. Sure. There's a whole weird structure, right? It used to be uh, called, it used to be Foreign Affairs. Then it's, then it was a DAFIT, which is Department of Foreign Affairs and International Trade, I believe it is. Uh, then in around like when Trudeau came to office, it, it, it got changed from DAFIT to Global Affairs Canada. Okay. And what is their function again? Global Affairs Canada is, is effectively like Canada's uh, foreign ministry. Okay. So they are the ones that deal with internet, like speaking with other countries and making yep. deals. Okay. Now, what is their relationship to the Venezuelan opposition? Right. So in a sense, they've basically they've repeatedly um, used this Canada Fund for Local Initiatives to uh, oh, okay, well, give okay. give donations Canada Fund for local initiatives. It's an uh, is a program run within the Foreign Affairs Department. Yes. OK, got it. And so essentially it's been giving uh, donations to, uh, to Venezuelan opposition groups uh, somewhere between like twenty five thousand to one hundred thousand each year uh, to this, these opposition groups. And many of them have been uh, very violent, very violent ones. And I mean, going back even now up to 2019, basically Global Affairs Canada promised to disperse around $53 million in quote unquote aid to Venezuela, basically trying to force through the aid to Venezuela. So this, this aid is being weaponized against, uh, against the Bolivarian revolution to this, uh, to this very day. Yeah. Okay. Now, one thing that maybe people are not familiar with, is it a breach of diplomatic protocols for the official representatives of the Canadian government to be hanging out, colluding, collaborating with the opposition? Sorry. Yes. <laughs> um, because it is a violation of the Vienna Agreement, right? Oh, yeah, of course. Okay. Now, what have they been doing with the opposition. Um, so they've been funding them. And how do they exactly get the funds over there? Just curious, do you know, who, who do they meet with? Are they funding the same people that the US funds like the Guaido group? Uh, yeah, basically, they've provided financial support uh, to the Guaido group. 
there's there's whole rumors and around uh i mean it's actually jorge uh arieza foreign minister mm-hmm. of uh of venezuela basically in one of the events the can fellows covered a couple months ago uh he mentioned basically that Canadian venezuelan engagement foundation was one of these that he was alleging was basically used to kind of get funds into this wide group oh, okay so. canadian venezuelan engagement fund foundation okay so that's is that okay and the canadian venezuelan engagement foundation is an NGO, and they're trying to get the state to privatize the PSUV, which is Venezuela's state-owned or partially state-owned oil company, right? Uh, that isn't so much their specific goal as it is just to push a, a pro-Guido agenda, basically, in terms of getting keeping the support for him and such. And who benefits in Canada? Like, how does the country of Canada benefit from having Guido there? Well, if Guaido comes into power, I mean, Canadian firms are going to be able to access Venezuela's national resources, have all most of, ah. most of those privatized. It's going to be Canadian economic interests and natural resources. That's going to be really where Canada benefits. Also, of course, it would be a damage to, um, to the left in Latin America more generally. So it would achieve two big, game, big games for, uh, for Canada. In the U.S., we've had many presidents, Putin, Evo Morales, on and on, say that even when you change the president, that nothing, the foreign policy is the same. It doesn't matter. Do you feel the same way with regards to Canadian foreign policy as in, does it matter if it's the Liberal or Harper's Party or... NDP, if they ever get there. <laughs> hmm. Yeah, so it really, in terms of actual real, in terms of material policy changes, it's not uh, really the, the case at all. You might have a like a smile, a happier face on the policy when you have liberals in office. Like for Harper, I know Harper pretty much celebrated uh, Chavez's death pretty openly. What did he do? Uh, Can you talk a little bit about this? Essentially, he just said it was a really great day for for like Venezuela and for a potential of uh, quote unquote freedom. Okay, I am stopping myself from calling him a very profane insult right now. He's disgusting. <laughs> yeah, no, he's he's really he's really bad. He is absolutely horrible. Uh, now, um, since we're on the subject of the Bolivarian Revolution and the Pink Tide. Do you know if Canada had any involvement in Lava Jato and the Lula coup? From everything I can tell, um, not uh, at present, but I also haven't had a chance to fully dig into that as much as I would, uh, as much as I'd, I'd like to. So. Okay. These days, because of electric vehicles and Canada also seems to have a huge mining industry. Well, I don't know if Canada has a mining industry as much as Canada has corporations that operate a lot of mines around the world. Is that an accurate thing to say? Yeah, pretty, pretty much. There's, there's some in Canada, but a lot of it is we're kind of a, we're a hub for them. And of course, we all know that because of electric vehicles, lithium is going to be more and more important. And we've also know that Elon Musk tweeted out, we'll coup whoever we want for the lithium or whatever. So was there any involvement in Canada in the coup against Evo Morales? 
So at this point, there isn't definitive proof per se, but I think it's pretty obvious that Canada played some sort of role. Oh, okay, so what can you kind of recount events that make you believe that they played some kind of role? Well, I think it's a lot of it is more is is uh, based on the geopolitics and um, and also just based on uh, natural resources. I mean, Canada's pretty clearly over the past couple of years uh, made it clear that lithium is one of their priority uh, minerals like digging through some of the uh, global affairs uh, and ministry of natural resources, uh, press, press releases and conversations uh, between, between them and, uh, and America. It's been very clear that lithium has been made a priority mineral. And I mean, especially with uh, Bolivia, especially even before the coup, and I assume that's going to continue after uh, basically looking to partner with uh, Chinese uh, state owned firms or basically just China's Chinese owned uh, firms in terms of mining that would provide them with a better deal and pretty much shut Canada out of that, uh, out of that chain per se. Uh, I feel like that was, that was a major motivation. So I think that, that would probably be the, the prime motivation other than quite frankly, that like Canada is quietly like a very, is a very, very anti-social, anti-communist government. It, 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 like anti-communism is very much just kind of cloaked uh, <laughs> in this country. It's, it's too becoming more and more blatant, honestly. I mean, it's but. not too cloaked. Uh, Christia Friedland's grandpa was a uh, was hanging out with Joseph Goebbels, <laughs> and you guys are building a monument to Ante Pavlovich. So, um, oh yes, <laughs> it's becoming. I think they're they're very much no longer starting to hide it. Over the past couple of years, they've stopped really trying to hide. Okay. Before it was before it was cloaked over like democracy, and it still is to a certain degree, but it, very much the pure anti-communism is becoming very, very much a dominant factor in this. Okay. Um, one question that kind of popped up that's not maybe related, but I just thought it would be interesting. Does Canada have nukes? I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure. Um, actually, wait, you know what? Okay. Let's time. do this typing rule. Let's do this typing rule. Um, um, no, no. Okay. No, we don't. Okay. Uh, so you're just like, so you're saying that the foreign policy is very similar, but the main difference is that Canada does not have nukes and America has too many nukes. <laughs> yeah, that's that's certainly one of the things. But of course, one of the things that's important to understand about Canada's foreign policy is essentially that it, it kind of it steps in where America doesn't really want to be seen as as stepping in. Like the Lima ah, group is a prime example of that. The which where group? The Lima group. Can you talk a little bit about it? Because we have not talked on our podcast, most of our listeners are probably not familiar with it. Right. So this was started in like 2016, 2017. Uh, this group of a couple uh, right-wing Latin American countries set up with the goal of pretty much, they claim, returning Venezuela to democracy. That, so a but coup. Why is it in Lima? Uh, because obviously, obviously Castillo, Pedro Castillo has come in in, uh, in ah. Peru and Okay. But, but he was only he only came in obviously a, like a month or two ago. So it's it's only been it's only been relatively recent that he he finally was able to come into office. Before that, they had like right wing or center right uh, politicians in power. So Peru is like the headquarters uh, of of the group. Interesting. And so, yeah. what does the Lima Group do, and how is it involved with the Canadian government? Because as we recall. You just said that the lead, the Canada is kind of like goes in where the U.S. doesn't want visibility. Yeah, no, that that is that is correct. Right. So the group was very much 
like trying to drive support uh, for Juan Guaido among countries around the world. Uh, they were trying to figure out how to coordinate diplomatic support, support the Guaido fake administrations. Those were some of the major the major acts. I mean, Canada was a major supporter, one of the biggest supporters of Guaido by far. Um, so that that was that was the key thing. It was, it was a really coordination of diplomatic and uh, international efforts to try to uh, try to interfere uh, in Venezuela's affairs. I mean, it's a major part of the reason that backlash towards Canada's policy towards Venezuela that Canada lost its bid for the uh, Security Council seat to Norway. Can you talk a little bit about that? I'm not at all familiar. Right. So there was um, there was a whole campaign in Canada um, part partway like through last year uh, to actually have Canada. <laughs> not be on the on the security council so that's one of those the security council is it a permanent member uh no 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 the, you have five permanent members and then you have basically 10 elected members that i think it's i, I believe it's two-year terms uh, it was two or five-year terms so okay and canada was bidding to be on one of the two or five-year terms and they lost it to norway does it really make a difference uh, in the sense that it really um, was a rebuke, essentially, of Canada's foreign policy that a lot of nations around the world uh, did recognize our policy, our, our policies abroad for what they are, which is interference and really strong disrespect for the sovereignty of nations. So there's a whole there's a whole uh, campaign across Canada to basically mobilize, try to reach um, uh, diplomats uh, from countries at the UN around those that were going to be voting, uh, reaching to these people uh, and reaching to people in other countries to try to make it clear how bad our foreign policy was and why uh, Canada really would be a terrible representative on there. So it's, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't typically think that there'd be a campaign against Canada being on it, but I mean, there's, there is extremely good grounds for it and it did succeed, so. Want to check out more interviews with journalists and scholars not beholden to corporate and or imperial interests? Head over to historically.substack.com. Also, if you've fully recovered from the Omicron your right-wing uncle or QAnon cousin gave you over the holidays, well, invite them on Late Nights with Lenin. Esha would love to exhibit their lion's not sheep hat and have them learn how to own the libs from the master himself, Vladimir Ilyich Ulanov. Shoot an email over to historically at substack.com. That's H-I-S-T-O-R-I-C-L-Y at substack.com. Now uh, with the global, with the U.S. pumping up the Cold War, um, I know we did a lot of introductory materials, but can we talk about China and Canada and Canada's relationship with China? Um, just kind of briefly talk, uh, and then we can go on to the main topic, which is Tibet. <laughs> sure thing, right. So Canada, obviously, the relations with China weren't perfect, but they were relatively solid. Like we had a, it's a very interesting dynamic where you have like almost two factions of the liberal elite where one faction wants to work with China for the economic benefits. Then you have the other voracious anti-communist faction that's pretty much led by Freeland and has won over. And so this kind of really, everything really went downhill. Whenever with, I uh, hear her name, I just want to mention that last year she used a Ukrainian fascist slogan on a Twitter and she's literally, her grandfather worked for Joseph Goebbels. Okay, go ahead. Sure thing, right. So Meng Wanzhou, uh, Huawei CFO, 
basically, uh, obviously, the U.S. illegally pulled out the JCPOA. More sanctions came back on Iran. And so wait, wait, wait. what is the JCPOA? uh, Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action. What is that? The Iran. Remember the Iran nuclear deal? In 2015? Yeah, the one signed in 2015. Yeah. Can you just give a brief refresher? Okay, right. So uh, essentially, uh, under this uh, joint comprehensive plan of action that was signed in 2015, Iran agreed to limit nuclear development and submit to yearly inspections by the International Atomic Energy Agency. So in exchange for this, uh, crippling sanctions imposed by the United Nations Security Council were supposed to end. In Iran gained access to more than $100 billion in assets frozen overseas and was able to resume selling oils on international markets and began using the global financial system for trade. And now the U.S. rolled that back sometime in 2018. Correct. And what happened with Canada? Right. So the whole deal is that uh, with, with, the Hmong, with the Hmong case that um, Huawei was essentially working to circumvent basically those sanctions, because obviously they're illegal under international law. So Huawei wasn't, I think Huawei wasn't going to stand for that. Uh, and so basically what happened was in, uh, in later on in 2018, essentially Canada at the behest of the United States, uh, which had basically put charges on against her uh, and, uh, and Huawei. Uh, Who after, is her again? Meng Wanzhou. Meng Wanzhou. Who is she? CFO of, CFO of Huawei. Chief, okay. Huawei uh, is a, a, a telecommunications company that's based out of China. It's a co-op and she's the CFO of Huawei. Okay, go ahead. That's correct. And so uh, after 33 countries, I believe it was, refused to uh, arrest, arrest Hmong, Canada was the only one to, to do so. And so... Immediately after that, uh, relations, uh, Wait, relations. Did they have an arrest warrant out for her or did they actually physically arrest her? So essentially there was no, Hmong's committed no crimes in Canada or not, isn't even alleged to have committed any crimes in Canada. We just plucked her out of the sky on the U.S.'s behest. This is very interesting, but very confusing. So can you kind of explain the sequence of events that led to this? So, so first, the, there were, the U.S. pulled out of the deal, and so these sanctions were put back in. Okay, so there's an, indict, there's an indictment uh, against Huawei CFO Meng Wanzhou. That got approved by a New York state court August 22nd, 2018. So dozens of countries were pressured to arrest the Huawei CFO Meng Wanzhou okay, so as they passed um, their borders. What and was then, the charge against her? Right. So it was essentially to violate the illegal U.S. sanctions against Iran. That was. Oh, OK. So they were doing business with Iran. And OK, so I don't understand one thing. Sure, sure, sure. OK, so Hold basically on. Huawei used it was alleged essentially that Huawei used Skycom as what? a proxy company. Skycom. Right. So it's another telecommunications company. Um, and so it was allegedly used as a proxy for Huawei to connect, conduct business in Iran. That's the allegation. Okay, and were they ever on U.S. soil? Uh, I don't, I, I don't believe Skycom was. Give me. A so, second. how can the U.S. file a charge against something that didn't happen on U.S. soil? Uh, wait a second, Sky. Actually, you know what? I think Skycom is located in the U.S. Okay, so okay, that makes sense. Okay, the U.S. government believe, uh, alleges that 
the corporation Skycom violated some law in the U.S. And because she's the CFO of that company, they are they filed charges against her based on that. Correct. Okay. Did she then travel to Canada? Yeah. So what happened was uh, she was in Canada in Vancouver on December 1st, 2018. So that's uh, where and when she was arrested. And what was the reason they gave for arresting her in Canada? Essentially, it was the fact that it was the U.S. charges and that she had entered within Canada's borders. And it was it was essentially uh, in terms of agreements around people that had done criminal acts in American Canada. There's obviously mutual agreements that if there's somebody committed crimes in America, basically they, they, and they're in Canada, if they run to Canada, then they would be forced to come back to America. If somebody does a crime in Canada, basically, and they're American uh, and they run off to America, then they can be forced to come back into Canada. Essentially that that's the essence of the deal. And that was, um, that's been in place for a long time. And so, that was the basis of the justification was that there was agreements there that there was an alleged uh, alleged charge now obviously the logic behind it is is farcical but that was the logic and what happened did she get extradited to the US no so it's it's still in process it's still in process um i know part of the trial is still on still ongoing uh and so basically there's supposed to be a decision uh, i know at least by the it's either end of the month or early september so there's been a whole like free mong wanjo campaign for the past a couple of years ever since uh ever since she was originally uh arrested and um this is how they collaborate almost with the u.s and they don't have an independent foreign policy uh no canada certainly does not have an independent foreign policy I mean, the best example of this is the is the recent investigation I, I did into uh, NED uh, influence, which is obviously the National Endowment for Democracy, which I think your audience is probably aware that that's a central intelligence agency cutout. Yeah, yeah, we've done a lot. We're, we're doing lots of stuff on that. If the rest of this century is to witness the gradual growth of freedom and democratic ideals, we must take actions to assist the campaign for democracy. We must be staunch in our conviction that freedom is not the sole prerogative of a lucky few, but the inalienable and universal right of all human beings. The objective I propose is quite simple to state, to foster the infrastructure of democracy, the system of a free press, unions. Last year in London, I spoke of the need and obligation to assist democratic development. My hope then was that America would make clear to those who cherish democracy throughout the world that we mean what we say. Well, the hope is now a reality. The National Endowment for Democracy, a private, nonprofit corporation funded by the Congress, will be the centerpiece of this effort. So can you tell us about the Tibet lobby in Canada? And I've written an article about Tibet, so they should be familiar. What's going on? Right. So this uh, this push to mobilize Tibet dissidents, that, that community began to work on that during the mid 1980s. So the Canada Tibet Committee is founded by Thubten Samdup in 1987. Uh, then uh, in 1992, the Dokham Kushi Gangjuk Society 
which is Canada's chapter of the India-based Welfare Society of Central Dokam Chushi Gandrug. Uh, that was that was founded, and so it's tightly connected to. Sorry for all the names. Uh, Kushi Gandruk, which is an organization of pro-feudalism Tibetan guerrilla fighters, which was created after the PLA, People's Liberation Army, took control of Tibet in 1951. So this Kushi Gandruk, it received training uh, and weapons from the CIA from 1952 to 1958, then played a key role in the pro-feudalism uprising in 1959. So, so in summary, right, you have this Canadian chapter that's connected to uh, an organization of historical pro-feudalism Tibetan guerrilla fighters. That gets created in 1992. Uh, then really in terms of uh, Canada, obviously 1994, you have Students for a Free Tibet USA come into existence. And then it's 10 years later, 2004, where Canada gets its own inspiration uh, students for a free Tibet Canada. Now, the interesting thing about students for free Tibet and in terms of NED fundraising fund, funding in general is it's really, really tough to track their funding uh, past 2016. Uh, but I am, I'm pretty sure they, mo they most likely uh, received NED support. That would, that would be a prime target with Tibet. But obviously the students for free Tibet was a long longer than the Canadian group. Right. Uh, and so that's, that's kind of the, the history of it anyways, is that you have uh, those kind of groups basically come along uh, and things, things start to really kind of in terms of Tibet to the uh, Canadian activism for the Tibet dissidents, it really kind of kicks off in like 2004, 2005. So there was a big act of terrorism right before the Beijing Olympics. Are they related? No. I, I, what, what, what act of terrorism was this? Oh, there was like lots. Um, there was like these like m mad monks that went and shot like a lot of people, blew up things. Just they, they, Don't worry about it then. Um, go on. Right. So this is kind of where uh, this is kind of where the, the, I, I mentioned this person because she's basically the most prominent Tibet dissident in in uh, in Canada, right? So she's actually this. Her person's person's name is Butila Karpoche. She mm -hmm. is an a member of provincial parliament in mm -hmm. Ontario. So she basically um, went to University of British Columbia, two thousand and three, right? So then a couple of years later, she becomes president of University of British Columbia's Students for Free Tibet Canada chapter in two thousand and six. So one of the efforts the Students for Free Tibet Canada made early on was to build a lot of university chapters because, quite frankly, the young generation is very important to manipulate and bring towards the uh, imperialist foreign policy because uh, less young people are able to think for themselves or not be intuited with uh, constant propaganda, which is something that really hasn't changed to this present day. But uh, so Karpoche, right? She ended up uh, obviously joining the Students for a Free Tibet Canada board in 2008, and she was already a deputy director of Students for a Free Tibet Canada. So she kind of came to a bit of a public prominence per se when there was this Ottawa-based uh, Free Tibet rally in 2008, so right around the, uh, the time of the Olympics. Uh, she pretty much was demanding, along with the, the, the Canada Tibet Committee and Students for Free Tibet Canada, to actually remove Tibet off the um, the Olympic torch relay route, and of course complaining that falsely that there's dissent being suppressed in uh, in Tibet 
the usual uh, the usual claims. But part of the reason why this is interesting, uh, and this is where the advent of social democracy uh, or social imperialists comes along, is Carpoche. And this is uh, Butila Carpoche. So she gets tapped to work in the constituency office of um, Parkdale High Park MPP, uh, Sherry DeNovo, her office. She's a prominent to- uh, pro-Tibet advocate, right? So uh, for context, the Parkdale High Park is essentially the main concentration of, uh, of Tibetans that have uh, come to Canada. So not, not all Parkdale High Park uh, people, Tibetans that are in there are anti-China, but the loudest vocal group uh, are the uh, are the dissident are the Tibet dissidents. So pretty much uh, across um, all levels, really, of um, of politics in Parkdale High Park, you essentially have um, these Tibet dissidents and Tibet dissident supporters really integrated in every every single political party except for pretty much the Communist Party of Canada. Um, like Gord Gord Perks had um, at, at this present day. I'm just jumping to this because I want to give people the context. Uh, so she, uh, Mr. Perks basically had, uh, this person, Yudon, uh, Sumo town. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm butchering the name. I know basically as a, uh, constituency assistant for at least two years, um, basically current Parkdale High Park MP, Arif Varani, uh, essentially sits on this, um, parliamentary friends of Tibet internship program, which has been running since 2009. And so the Canadian MP, Currently, right now, um, for Parkdale High Park, uh, Arif Virani, uh, basically, he has been the chair of this Friends of Tibet group uh, in Canadian Parliament, and he's been the lead figure in running this. Uh, and then, obviously, the uh, MPPs, uh, like Sherry DeNovo, uh, at the point we're at, basically, all of them uh, are and have been extremely supportive of the, uh, the Tibet dissident cause uh, because there's that concentration of the dissidents in that, in that area. So it's really like a key hub uh, of that Tibet dissident activity in Canada. And what is their ultimate goal, really? Right. So it's, it's mainly to, to push Canada to have adopt a really strong anti-China stance. There's, there's a lot of groups trying to do that. Uh, it's, it's really a lot. It's, it's quite underestimated in this country. Uh, so that's, that's one of the major things. It's obviously to push for Canada to basically claim Tibet as being occupied by the, 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 the Chinese government. And that those are the, and basically try to get Canada to support, uh, the dissidents essentially, uh, with funds and more, and even more support than, uh, than they're already getting. So that, that's really the, uh, that's really the major aims. So I want to mention something because I didn't, I didn't touch on this uh, properly enough. After she um, worked, after she was tapped to work with uh, DeNovo, right? Uh, there's a Toronto Star article, a direct quote from this article I really want to read because it explains pretty bluntly how this position that Carpoche got was a reward for this Tibetan activism. So it's, DeNovo had wanted to add a Tibetan speaker to his staff to better liaise with Parkdale's large Tibetan community so, uh, population. So she asked organizers with students for a free Tibet if they knew anyone who might have been interested. Karpoche arrived and quickly became indispensable. So it's, it's pretty much bluntly said that she got the position because of her Tibetan activism, her dependent dissident activism. And that, that came through the, uh, through the NDP, which is the New Democratic Party, is the Social Democratic Party uh, in Canada. But getting to your early, getting back to your earlier question, though, what was it? What do they want, basically? Right. So I think I, I touched on this. Essentially, it's is more fundraising for the dissident cause, more funding for the dissident cause, 
uh, Canada pretty much recognized uh, Tibet as occupied territory, basically that it should be independent uh, and really to push Canada towards an extremely anti-China policy. They've made really strong alliances with uh, the, the Uyghur rights people, the Uyghur rights groups in, uh, in Canada. That, that's how I kind of discovered them at first. Uh, was I was looking at this Canadian coalition on human rights in China and I realized basically that uh, Students for Free Tibet Canada was there and they uh, basically were essentially being listed uh, as, let me clarify that because it's important, uh, I realized here. Okay, so essentially the Students for Free Tibet Canada listed the Canadian Coalition on Human Rights in China as one of their partner groups. So I don't know if Canada, if they were in it. I just want to make that important clarification. But that partner group had uh, groups such as uh, the East Turkestan Association of uh, Canada, which uh, just something to mention, and this is something I'm probably going to do an article on eventually, but they actually um, had a director of an intelligence department in Canada, and they only tried to change that title after I reached out by email, like asking for asking for clarification uh, why this why this why uh, they had a director of an intelligence department and basically clarifying requesting to know what this was, uh, and they then tried to just change the name uh, away from uh, director of intelligence department. But that's that's for example like one of the groups that the Students for Free Tibet Canada considered to be a partner organization, one of these Uyghur rights groups. Own words, running an intelligence department in Canada, which nobody really knows what the hell it's doing to be exactly sure, but it's quite concerning, right? And those are the kind of people they're partnering with. They're partnering with the Hong Kong people, uh, Canada, Hong Kong link. You got the movement for democracy in China. It's, it's a whole, it's a whole thing. Actually soon for a free Tibet Canada is in the Canada for coalition on human rights in China. I, I jumped the gun. I was right. They are part of that coalition. Uh, and so it's basically, um, they really actively partner with a lot of these, every single anti-China group they can partner with, they very much ally closely together. That's one of the biggest patterns in Canada is these groups are very, very, very tightly knit because obviously they have the same purpose in the end of the day, which is right, which is to destabilize China. And what do they get out of that? Destabilizing China, I mean, they really want to return. They, they don't real. I don't think a lot of these, um, some of the older ones do probably, but a lot of the younger uh, these Tibet dissidents or Tibet dissident supporters don't realize that it was feudalism before uh, the PLA uh, came in. So they want essentially a return to Dalai Lama and the Dalai Lama in power. Essentially, is what they want. They don't know it, but they want to return to theocracy. Okay, two things. Where do they get their money and why? Right. So that wasn't one hundred percent clear to me. This is the one of the one of the things I've I noted very much while researching this is a lot of these. Um, of these uh, dissident organizations uh, choose to register as corporations. So there's actually no annual reports, annual financial reports, or financial statements of any supports. They are not available. So the they're actually their official source of incomes are impossible to determine. So the only one I know for sure in terms of funding is the Students for Free Tibet, uh, the main organization in America, does take money from the National Endowment for Democracy. Mm-hmm. But in terms of students for Free Tibet Canada and a lot of these other groups, they essentially, in my view, manipulate Canada's laws around corporations because they they um they're really not a biz they're really not a business, but they register as a corporation, and uh, essentially they're able to not not re- reveal 
any of their information despite pretty much acting as NGOs. Can you tell us a little bit more about the Canada Files and what you guys are doing your fundraising uh, drive for? Right, sure thing. So obviously the, the Canada Files has been doing uh, has been doing these kind of investigations, whether it be on Tibet, NED influence in Canada, and more. We've been doing that work for 20 months. And we so we've established a really clear track record of these critical investigations. So the point of the, the, of the fundraising campaign is really simple. It's to enable myself and Daniel Z, who is the co-editor, I mean, associate editor of the Canada Files, uh, to just do this work and these this investigative work on a minimum wage full-time capacity. So our real goal for the, uh, for the month is to, is to hit 7,500 Canadian a month in uh-huh. monthly support. Is it a subscription model like, or is it a donation model? It's more of a donation model. So it's, it's, uh, it's, done through, it's done through donor box. And what is that? Right. So essentially, it's, a, it's just another payment processing uh, kind of service, essentially, is what it is. It's somewhat, it's, it's uh, think of a kind of, it's more of a payment kind of processing service. It's not so much like Patreon. Patreon we're moving away from because that takes around 8.5% of the processing fees and DonorBox uh, only takes about half of that. So it's much better. People are, when they're donating, the more of their money is going toward, the vast majority of their money is going towards uh, the can files, not the processing fees. So. Okay. And um, so can you tell us a little bit about your campaign, what you hope and why people should donate? I know why people should donate, but I want to hear it from you. Of course. Yeah. So the, the key thing is that the past 20 months, the investigations have very much been laying the groundwork to do long-term exposés and investigations into Canadian imperialism. That's one of the, that's the biggest thing is that we've been laying the groundwork, but to do these serious investigations, to do these investigations over the years, mm-hmm. the Canada Files needs stability. It needs the financial support that myself and Daniel can do this work, can do it on a full-time basis, even if it's just minimum wage. We can do it on a full-time basis to critically investigate Canadian foreign policy because there's, and try to help build political consciousness about Canada's foreign policy because there's a really poor, uh, limited understanding about what our foreign policy is, how we're an imperialist uh, aggressor, really, across, uh, across much of the world. And so to, to do that, to help build that awareness, to do these investigations, that support is really needed. And so one of the major incentives, right, at $7,500 a month, I'm sure you're aware of the Gray Zone and Aaron Mate. So he does a show called Pushback. And so I'd very much be taking inspiration in this is that at that, at that $7,500 a month goal, there'll be a show, a weekly uh, interview show with a guest based on the uh, most important events that are impacted by Canadian foreign policy. So that's, that's, one, of the, um, that's one of the major incentives. And if people want to see uh, more about that. Essentially, they can go to the Canada Files uh, Twitter. There's two further incentives: thirteen thousand a month. We would start a podcast, uh, start a whole podcast on Canadian imperialism, and at twenty thousand dollars, we'd even be able to bring on a third editor. But to be honest, the first goal, just seventy five hundred, is the priority because that's going to be a challenge to get to. But it would be incredibly crucial to be able to hit that target because that would provide really, really important stability. Okay. Um. Are you uh, familiar with the climate change situation and China's role in it? Uh, China's been playing a really positive role in trying to build green technology, right? Okay. Can we have climate alleviation without China? No. Okay. 
So um, that to me sounds like the best reason that we need to understand all the foreign policies because we literally cannot have any alleviation and all of us are going to be hurt because for whatever reason, the U.S. Uh, top bosses um, are not addressing the climate change. They're just going to use And I've done many videos about this. So literally, the future of the planet is at stake. <laughs> oh, 100 percent. And that's the thing is in terms of there's such a constant campaign against China basically to try to, uh, like obviously I mentioned earlier, the tax on the Belt and Road Initiative, the constant slander against China. Uh, there's such an incredibly great need for international cooperation and engagement to fight the, the one of the biggest crisis, crises of our, our lifetime that'll define us if we make it as human society, really. And instead, you really have, uh, in terms of institutions, think tanks, and media, it's, it's really an all-out drive in Canada to demonize China, to make relations permanently toxic. And there, there's some just, just some concerning things in Canada. I mean, obviously, with, with the Xinjiang genocide vote that was pushed through, um, the Canada Files was the one that exposed how an NED funded group, the Uyghur Rights Action uh, Project, right? That group uh, drove basically the passage uh, of that, basically of that, uh, that, that genocide vote and was one of the key witnesses in the submit subcommittee uh, report that led to this. That was the Canada files that exposed this. And this is the kind of reporting, the kind of game changing reporting that we can do that opens so many people's eyes to the nature and insidious nature of the intelligentsia and political elites in this country. But we just need the backing and the support to do this. And there's a lot of great people trying to do great work in Canada, but it's also really important for people that are abroad to consider that supporting it and backing it as much as possible also really builds, gives the Canfiles more time to build that consciousness and build that domestic support that's needed. So the support within Canada is obviously our, the main ideal, but the truth is the support wherever it comes from is really, really appreciated. And it's needed because capacity needs to be built and we're doing our darn well best to do that. Thank you so much, Aiden. And where do people find you? Sure thing. So uh, on, on Twitter, it would be uh, The Canada Files. Just search The Canada Files and you'll find the account. Mm -hmm. My personal account is Aiden uh, under slash Jonah, J-O-N-A-H. Uh, and so uh, if, if people go on the site also, they can sign up for the newsletter. Keep an eye on that. And of course, the donor box is, is, would be where people could donate and support the Canada files. Uh, the, hopefully the link I can send it to you and, and that can be put in the, uh, in the show notes Absolutely. or wherever, wherever it is, wherever it's needed. Um, mm -hmm. I, just, uh, I just really appreciate the opportunity to, um, to chat. It's, it's one of those things where, to be honest, I got mostly, the Canada files mostly got shut out of uh, podcasts and media right. and video space there's only like a like robert Rousseau was really great in terms of having me on a few times throughout but most people have kind of i even had a whole case where somebody where i was talking about a, something around palestine and the ihra definition that's being pushed in there uh, our well, social democrats i'm sorry international i ihra it's i believe it's the international holocaust remembrance uh, association's definition which is really been slammed as uh, an attack, uh, just a, a dedicated attack on Palestine activism. 
Oh, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. Got it. Got it. Uh, okay. So right. it so, is pink water. Okay. I understand exactly now. Now, what uh, what happened with, uh, is that you got pushed out because you spoke out against Israel? Oh, no, no. What, what it was, I, I last, I, I had previously last appeared on a podcast, uh, basically uh, one of these uh, social Democrat podcasts to discuss what was happening with the Palestine and IHRA definitions. And I basically criticized the NDP uh, for the supporter on the Xinjiang narrative around um, Hong Kong, because I had recently also done an, an investigation looking into how uh, Canada's national security laws are actually remarkably similar to, uh, to the ones that are being put into pl- that were being put into place in China. So just ah. showing how, yeah, it was one of the, one of the investigations I was really proud of. It was, was actually myself and Daniel Z, we worked together on this to show that this hysteria around the law was actually totally full of shit. Like totally full of it. Totally, totally full of it. It was totally full of it. And when I brought this up and I brought up the NDP support for the Xinjiang narrative, the person within one minute, very quickly, uh, suddenly stopped the episode, kicked me out of the Zoom meeting. And then Crazy. that episode never got released. Yeah, um, this is going to be par for the course. You just have to, yeah. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm used to it. And I accepted it. The fact that basically I know like within Canadian media, part of the reason why it would be really important for people to support this, to be quite honest, is the Canada Files is my only shot really of doing journalism within Canada. I have burned, myself and Daniel, we both burned every single bridge we have within mainstream and Good. left mainstream media in, in this country because that's what principled journalism uh, does basically yeah. right and so that's yeah. part of the key reason is i'm in journalism school right i'm a journalism student and of course i'm in the industry as well is one of the biggest motivations to me is i really want to prove to my generation of journalism students and journalism students to come that principle of journalism does not end your career and it could actually be the making of your career i really want to drive that that home to my generation and that isn't possible unless people really back the can files in a way that it's undeniable uh, that makes sense. Um, and it probably will kill your career with mainstream media, but there's more important things like the future of our planet. Is what yep, I'm say. I couldn't agree more. I, I, if you give me a choice about what to do, I would do it all over again. A hundred percent. Well, thank you so much, Aiden. And we appreciate you coming along. And uh, I hope you have a great rest of the day. Yeah, thanks a ton. It's, it's always it's, it's great to be on the podcast. So. Thank you. Have a good day. Music for this show is done by Rectech. You can find him on SoundCloud and on Spotify. W-R-E-C-K-T-E-C-H. And thank you for listening to our show.